When I was a little kid, uh, we'd come up to Yosemite almost every year, and we uh, climbed Half Dome almost every year. One of the years, uh, as we're climbing Half Dome, we were up on the cables. Uh, my dad was down low looking at the pipe that was holding the cables up off of the stone, and he noticed the stamp on the side. It said Kaiser Steel, and he was so thrilled. My father was a metallurgist who spent his whole life working for Kaiser Steel. He was in charge of quality assurance in six of the pipe meals, and that was his pipe. And he had inspected that pipe molecularly to make sure that it would stand up to the rigors of its intended use. He explained to me that the strange thing about steel is it's an alloy in which you can add various ingredients to cause it to be what you want it to be. But the best steel is stressed while it's cooling. And it doesn't make logical sense to me. I'm not a chemist or a metallurgist. But it changes the steel molecularly if you stress it as it cools. And whereas we think all stress is bad, James announced to us, no, you've got it wrong. God actually uses stress in your life for good purposes. We read in chapter 1, verse 2 of James, Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. In other words, to go through trial, to go through difficulty, to be tried and tested actually is good for us because it develops within us a character trait that is godlike of steadfastness and constancy and resilience and endurance. He says, let endurance have its perfect result so that you may be complete Perfect, lacking in nothing. Notice in verse 2, the word trials. Notice in verse 12, the word trial. Blessed is the man who perseveres under trial. Then notice verse 13, where in my translation it says, Let no one say when he is tempted, I'm being tempted by God. Here's the secret of what James is explaining. All three words, verse 2, verse 12, verse 13, are all the same word. Being translated differently in context as to how that word is being used. Which means the same circumstances that could make us better and eventually produce in us the godlike character trait of endurance, could also, if we allow it by our own fleshly, lustful, selfish desires, be an invitation to evil, be an invitation to steal what does not belong to us, to be an invitation to spend that on our own pleasures, it can turn into an invitation to lust. And that is an amazing realization for us 
that absolutely everything that we go through can make us better or can make it worse. We can become a better person. We can become a worse person. So it's, surprise, surprise, not so much what it is you go through is how you are responding to what you go through. How you use the experiences of life. So people will rattle off, I've been through this, I've been through this, I've been through this, and they will explain all the damage that it has done because of the poor response. Or you've heard people who've said, I'm not a victim, I am a victor. That did not destroy me, that does not define me, that is not who I am, I am a different person as a result of what I have been through. And they could mean that different in the sense of positive, having grown through it. And so it's absolutely necessary for us to understand why we struggle with temptation and how temptation comes about and how we are warned in advance of the process so that we would not find ourselves responding poorly, but find ourselves understanding what's happening to us and in self-talk, explain to ourselves, I'm not stupid here, I know what's going on, and tell ourselves this is the proper response and make that response. This is what James says. He's so downright practical. Chapter 1, verse 13. Let no one say when he is tempted, I'm being tempted by God. For God can't be tempted by evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each one is tempted when he's carried away and enticed by his own lust. Then when lust is conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brethren. First thing I want you to notice is that sinning is a process. Even if it's coming on fast, you can still break it down into a process. And you have to understand how this is happening to you. Secondly, I want you to understand his summary statement in verse 16. You were deceived. You believed a lie. Sometimes the lie is coming from outside of us. Sometimes the lie is coming from inside of us. You could go all the way back to when Satan approached Eve. And he lies to her about God's command. He won't let you eat anything. Is that really what God is like? And she goes, no, 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 you've got, you're exaggerating. There's just this one tree. And then she makes it worse by saying, we're not even allowed to touch it. Then he goes on to say, well, you've completely misunderstood You could be like God, knowing both good and evil, if you eat of this tree. And she says, well, why wouldn't I want to be like God? He has lied to her. She has lied to him. She has set herself up for deception. And she has believed the lie, I would want to be like God, knowing both good and evil. Not understanding that the only way she'll ever experience evil is to experience it in her life and allow it to destroy herself and separate her from God forever. 
we're not God gracious and kind and forgiving and willing to allow her to repent and accept his gracious gift of salvation and allow her back into fellowship with him. When we sin, it's not because we're so stupid. It's because we're willing to be deceived. Whether the person is outside of us or whether the person is inside of us, the sin is coming from deception. The first lie we tell ourselves is, this is not my fault. This is God's fault. God is the one that placed me in this situation. God is the one that presented me with this way out. I have no choice but to sin. Lie, lie, lie. First of all, he says, let's get our theology right. There is nothing in the person of God that has any lure, any weakness towards sin at all. God couldn't sin. This is a strange way of saying it. Even if he wanted to, which he couldn't want to, because there's nothing in him that would want to. But God couldn't sin because he can never act different from his own nature. And since his nature is holy and righteous, and he, by definition, is what is righteous, what is true, he can't sin, no lure within him, and hence he would never, ever tempt us. So all temptation is an invitation to go rogue, to go independent, to not listen to the truth, to disbelieve God, to lie to ourselves, and to say, I know better. I'll do my own thing. God tempts no one. James straight out says, each one of us is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust. Any fishermen here? This term is actually used of fishing. It's used of drawing the fish out of its hiding place. Now, any hunters here? A few hunters. This term is also used of setting a trap for an animal to capture the animal. It's an explanation of how we trick someone into being captured, be it a fish, be it an animal that we're seeking to capture. I told you that my dad had a boat. We loved water. He wanted to fish half the time, was willing to ski us once we got tired of fishing. In one particular vacation, he says, we're going to Clear Lake and we're going to live off the land. We're going to fish until we catch what we need for the day, and then we can ski the rest of the day. We've been to Clear Lake many times before, and the fishing was good. We get to Clear Lake this particular time. There were four of us, uh, just my parents and the two youngest ones, Dave, my brother, and me. And he announces we're going to eat fish for breakfast, lunch, and dinner. So we're out fishing, and the fish aren't biting. The bait that he normally used wasn't working, which means all the fish are talking to their cousins, saying, remember the stuff they were using last year? <clears throat> remember how Cousin Henry isn't with us anymore? <laughs> Let's not be stupid about this. We're not idiots. Don't eat that stuff. There's a hook in it. You will die. And so my dad, frustrated, since we weren't catching anything, it was about to ruin the whole vacation. We didn't bring food. We were going to live off the land. We are going to eat fish, breakfast, lunch, and dinner. So he goes to the bait shop, and he goes in plaintively asking the guy at the bait shop, hey, what's wrong with the fish this year? 
And he explains the whole situation. He says, well, they're smart this year. They're not biting for bait. You need to use lures. And my dad was completely gullible and was saying, uh, well, what do I need? Uh, And there were three of us that wanted to fish, my dad, my brother, and me, and my mom, who would much rather read a book, didn't need a pole. And so he says, you need a seven-foot-long set of lures of these little shiny things that look like spoons. They have little fluorescent paint on them. They've never seen these things before. They're sure to fall for it. So buy a whole stringer of lures for each of your three lines. My dad spent a fortune, probably more than it would have cost to just buy the fish. So we're out there, and sure enough, the cousins hadn't talked about this, never seen this stuff before. We're not even using bait. We're just moving our lures around. They're going like, this looks so good. And we succeeded. We got to eat fish, breakfast, lunch, and dinner, and got to ski to our hearts of content, and it was completely saved vacation, all because we outsmarted the fish. Now, here's the funny thing about us. We are no smarter than the fish. And he says to us, this is how it happens. Each one of us is carried away and enticed by our own lust. Lust is exactly the opposite of love. Love is giving and sacrificial. Love sees the need in the other person and meets that need at its own personal self-sacrifice. You watch what God did through Jesus Christ. That's true love. He did not want to destroy us, though we deserved it. And he was willing at great personal sacrifice to himself to die in our place to make it possible for him to righteously forgive us. Lust is exactly the opposite. Lust says, you have something I want. I'm going to steal that from you, and I'm going to spend it on my own pleasures. And so it's completely stupid and selfish, but that's how we function as warped, sinful creatures. He says, we are carried away and enticed by our own lust. And what's the stupidest thing about this is he says, we build, bait, and get caught in our own own trap even fish wouldn't do that we build bait and catch ourselves in our own traps so i want you to think of this sin is a process of steps and if you slow it down and break it apart you can watch it happen so a bunch of us were caught in a long line trying to get into yosemite By the time we got to the booths and saw that only two people were working a line that was 10 miles long. Some of us had feelings for the rangers. Okay. So we have have an opportunity. We're going to break this down theologically. We could say, like, do they not care about customers? We're the whole reason they're here. They wouldn't even have a job without us. Surely they can open four lines for us or they can just allow us to buy tickets online and have it on our cell phone and just scan our cell phone as we go through and we never even have to slow down. We could invent a way to get into Yosemite quickly. We could solve this whole problem for this. And we can make this a way in which to grow in endurance or we can build bait, and set our own trap of temptation and fall into sin. 
and rebel against God stupidly and cause ourselves to fall further away from the righteousness of Christ. When I was young, my older brother, who is a a gifted person in electronics, eventually became an uh, electrical engineer. Uh, He was young. I was young. Uh, We had a a little locomotive that was run by electricity that ran on tracks around our living room had a huge transformer and it had a dial with numbers on it. You could uh, turn up the dial, more electricity was fed to the locomotive, the train would go faster, you could get it fast enough that you could crash around the turns, which was fun. But he got this idea that (coughs) since you could measure the amount of electricity coming out, that he could run wires from the transformer to two electrical flashlights and run electricity through the bodies of his friends. And he created a a competition, since there were numbers on the dial, of how much electricity you could withstand. And so after he had worn out all his friends and they all left, he was looking around for someone who'd be gullible enough to do it. And he offered to try it on me. And I knew my brother, and I, I said to him, if I let you do this, you won't stop when I say stop. And he says, No, I would not hurt you. The moment you say stop, I will stop. And so, building the trap for myself, I baited it with the thought, well, since I don't trust him, all I'll do is just let go. And then I took hold of the flashlight. So now I've not only built the trap, I've baited the trap, and I'm about to be caught in my own trap. Because sure enough, as he's turning up the dial slowly, he's calling off the numbers, and I'm getting halfway up the dial, and I'm saying, stop, 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 because it actually is painful. And he doesn't stop. He keeps going. And as I I say to myself, remember, I was in charge here. I'm just going to let go of the flashlights. The problem was my arms were curving inward, and my fingers were squeezing tighter and tighter. The more electricity you run through your body, the more your muscles tense, and you cannot let go. So here I thought, like, I'll be able to run and find the way of escape. 1 Corinthians 10, 13. There's a way of escape. I'll choose the way of escape. I had this all planned out. But no, I was so stupid that I got to the point where I could not escape any longer, and I was completely entrapped. We do that to ourselves over and over. We'll, we'll go to a party we shouldn't have gone to. We'll say, well, I'll just leave when it gets out of hand. We'll start singing to ourselves that song, Mama told me not to come. <coughs> and I'll leave. But why is it we don't leave? Why is it that we stay? It's because we have built, baited, and entrapped ourselves because we have lied to ourselves about the truth. Notice again, he says, verse 16, do not be deceived, my beloved brethren. This lure, this entrapment is unique to each one of us. Notice he says we're enticed by our own lust. What tempts some of us doesn't tempt others of us. It's unique to us. We have some inherited tendencies It can run in our family genetically. It could be the environment in which we are from. It could be our upbringing, our experience. It could be our own personal choices. But some things are very hard for some people and not hard at all for each one of us. 
and in the New Testament era in which he has given us the law of the Spirit, he places his Holy Spirit within us as a personal, individual God. In the Old Testament, they had the law, 613 commandments. Then you had the Pharisees who added corollaries to each of those commandments. You ended up with about 3,000 rules by which they were governing every part of their lives, which was for the purpose of controlling them, which was for the purpose of giving them power over people, which was to feed their own egos and their own lusts. How wonderful it is to not all have exactly the same rules in which he gives us greater freedom in the New Testament by the leading of the Spirit. In the areas of moral indifference in which he has not specifically spoken and told us right from wrong, he allows us, by the guidance of the Spirit, to be involved in things which may be okay for us, but not for the next person, because we may be strong in this area and they are not strong. And that's why there are passages in the Scripture that speak of applying principles to guide us in making wise decisions. And so we should be learning ourselves, learning about ourselves to know where to be particularly careful because of our vulnerabilities and our past mistakes and be even more strict on ourselves than our friends and our associates around us because of our known weaknesses. He says, when lust is conceived... It gives birth to sin, and when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. Notice it starts with a lure within us. You can read about this lure in Romans 6, 7, and 8, particularly chapter 7, in which Paul is writing saying, I don't understand myself. I don't even know what's going on in me. I love the law, but I find myself violating the law, And I don't even understand why this is happening. He's explaining that there's something that wells up within him that causes him to have a greater susceptibility to sin than he thought he would. He said, for example, covetousness, a very clear command, even from the Ten Commandments. He said, I had no sensitivity to covetousness until I learned thou shalt not covet. And then I realized I covet all the time. What's wrong with me? There is something about within us, the understanding of temptation that we say, just because you said I can't do it, it makes me want to do it all the more. And if you have two-year-olds, do you have a two-year-old that just because you said no, they test you? And they say, you said I can't step on this? Watch me. And they put their foot right over the line. When I speak at camps, I'm always listening to the director about the rules for the camp of that particular week. And this particular time at Verdugo Pines, as they were reading off the rules, they said, and you can't throw rocks in the pool. And I thought, like, what camp has added that rule? When I was at Emmaus, we kept adding to the rules because we kept getting new students. And as I meet them as alumni, years later, they go like, hey, remember that rule? That was me. I'm the one that caused that rule. Well, at Verdugo, I'm going like, can't throw rocks in the pool. Why would anybody throw rocks in the pool? Until I met the lifeguard who was a Nazi. She was so controlling that whenever she wouldn't look, the campers would throw rocks in the pool. And she'd make them all get out of the pool. And then she, up on her pedestal, climbed down 
and dove to the bottom of the pool and got the rock out. And I thought like, oh, so if we throw rocks in the pool, she'll have to go to the bottom of the pool to get it out. Now I completely understand, and I'm completely sympathetic, and now I feel the lure and the temptation to throw rocks in the pool. It had never occurred to me before until I met her, and I felt this strong pull. Oh, I wish, I wish, I wish I can throw rocks in the pool, but I'm the speaker. I can't do that. (laughs) It's interesting, his wording. Verse 15. When lust has conceived. So I had the lust to throw a rock in the pool, but I immediately rejected it and said, I will not. And then it went away. Isn't that interesting? If I reject it, it goes away. There are so many ideas that come into our heads where we say, huh. And we can take that idea And throw it away and say, absolutely not. That would not be what God would want. Or we can just play with that idea for a while. We start lying to ourselves about that idea. And we start letting that idea ferment within us. If we do that, we're in a real danger zone. Because lust is about to conceive. And once it conceives, there's an incubation process in which it will birth death. It will separate us from God and we will be ruined in our sin. And so he says, understand how this happened. Eve in Genesis three thought that that tree has to be good if it's the tree of life. And I really want to be like God. And so I'll lie to myself about what God said. And I'll listen to a person who I know I shouldn't listen to. And I'm going to do something that I pretty much well know is harmful. But I'll just hold that thought back and say, I really want to know what God knows. And we really ought to be as wise as serpents and innocent as doves and be able to see what's happening here and make the choice of being innocent and not sinful. Do not be deceived, my Beloved brethren, his solution for temptation is accept the gift from God. God is right there saying, I have what you need. Here is the equipment that you need. This is the antidote to the venom that you have running through you right now. Take this. He writes in verse 17, every good thing given. Every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shifting of shadow. His hand is out with the gift of the knowledge we need to resist the temptation. It's a perfect gift designed exactly for what we need right at that moment. The God who created the star universe, which in L.A. we didn't even know existed. Up here at night, there's like no streetlights. And you can like look up and you can see more stars, if there weren't smoke, than than perhaps you've ever seen in your life. You can see the Milky Way. Right now we're just seeing milky smoke. But you can see the God who created this universe. 
the source of all light, physical light, intellectual light, moral light, spiritual light. Yes, the sun shifts and the shadows move, but the one who made the sun, he says, is completely unchanging. We can rest in the unchangeable Lord of light. We can be children of light, but we have to accept his gift. Verse 18. And the exercise of his will, he brought us forth by the word of truth so that we would be a kind of first fruits among his creatures. He's speaking here of an offer of regeneration, an offer of new birth, in which we take him at his word and act upon it. That we rely on his life-giving word of truth, which is his holy scripture. He says, as newborn believers, as regenerated believers, the power of sin has been broken. We don't have to yield to temptation. We can resist its deadly force. We have the power to say no. We don't want to sin and stunt our growth towards spiritual maturity. So take him at his word. Believe the truth. 1 Corinthians 10, 13 says, Every sin with which we are tempted is common to other people. We lie and we say, no, no one has had it like me. No one feels like I feel. No one has been tempted as I have been tempted. Total lie. The sins we face are common to all of us. In fact, the writer of the Hebrews says of Jesus, he was tempted in all aspects as we are, yet without sin. And so we can't say, I'm a unique situation. We have to say, like everybody fills this kind of stuff. Secondly, he says that God is faithful and will not allow us to be tempted beyond that which we are able. We lie to ourselves and we say, I can't do this. I love to water ski. It's my favorite sport. I love to slalom ski. When you get pulled on a slalom ski, there is a very strong pull, but it's a very short pull. Many people find that because of the drag of how much they weigh in the water and how thin the ski is, that the pull is just too much for them and they let the handles just pull out of their hands. If you just tell yourself the truth, which is, I can hold on to these handles, the pull will be instantaneous, it will go away, just hang on, you'll find yourself able to get up and go right out of the water. Professional skiers, as they're making sharp turns, will have an instantaneous pull of up to 900 pounds of force, but it doesn't pull out of their hands because they don't have to keep holding on to 900 pounds. It's just an instantaneous pull as the boat rips them around their sharp corner. I don't think I get all 900 pounds because I'm not turning as sharp as they turn. But I get a lot of pounds. I have no way to measure it, but it feels like 400, 500 pounds I'm holding on to. But I know already how long it will pull. And I know if I hang on, I'll get through this. My father is a world-class marathoner. At my age, the age I am right now, he ran a 306 in the San Francisco Marathon. He was the best for his age in California. He was in the top 
5% nationwide. He was in the top 10% internationally. Ran everywhere. One of the things about the marathon is around mile 20, you hit what they call the wall, in which your body has used up all the normal fuel source that it had been using for the first 20 miles, and it needs to switch fuel sources. And it takes time. It takes about a half a mile in order to switch the fuel source. If you are not experienced in marathons, you get to mile 20, you say, like, I can't take another step, I give up. But what if you knew what this was going to feel like, and you knew how long it's going to last, and you'd say, like, all I have to do is run a half mile more, we'll be burning a different fuel source, and we'll be able to finish 26.2 miles. If you knew that in advance, would that help? Sure it would. And so you just say, like, okay, well, here comes the pain. Pain was expected. It hurts a lot. Feel like I can't take another step. Just keep going. As soon as I get to 20 and a half miles, I'll be okay. And I'll feel good again. And I'll be able to finish to the end. Temptation to sin. Lust is like that. If we learn from God the word of truth, he calls it the law of liberty, a freeing law. It's the truth. And if we believe him at the truth and we take him at his word, he will lead us through this. He says, no temptation taken you is stronger than you have the ability to resist with the power of Jesus Christ in your life. That means actually every single time we feel the lure, we could say no. Now, do we do that? No, we get inconsistent. But could we repeatedly find consistency in obedience if we say no, 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 yes, exactly. I gave up eating donuts. You know how it happened? A friend of mine took a glazed donut and had me put it in my hand. He says, squeeze it as hard as you can. So I did. And then he says, put it down. Now look at your hand. That cured me right there. I was going to like, ooh, I am dead to donuts. Now that I know what's happening to me, I am dead to donuts. I have no lure towards donuts any longer because I saw what was in them. If you can do that with sin, if you can say, I know what's happening to me, I can break this down into its parts and I can see what's taking place here. I hear this lie. I'm going to choose not to believe the lie. I'm going to accept the gift of God, which is the word of truth. I'll be like one of these first fruits among his creatures, and I will do what is right. Verse 19, when he speaks of the response, you could apply this to our response one to another in a tempting circumstance in which we blow up in anger and tell people what we think of them. But you can also apply it to our relationship with God in which he's asking us to be quick to hear him and to listen carefully to his leading. Since we have the indwelling ministry of the Spirit, and since he says, please go read Romans 6, 7, and 8, he says the answer is to be led by the Spirit. When you are being led by the Spirit, you will not, that's a promise, fulfill the deeds of the flesh. Listen to that again. When you are led by the Spirit, in other words, I'm listening, I'm listening, I'm listening, you will not carry out the deeds of the flesh. That's a promise. Because he says, my beloved brethren, everyone must be quick to hear. So listen carefully, especially to the word of God. Slow to speak. In other words, don't be 
ignoring what the person is saying because you're formulating your answer right back. Have you ever noticed that in conversations where you're having a heated conversation and you're not even hearing what the person's saying because you're formulating your own answer back? No. Be slow to speak, slow to anger. The anger of man does not achieve the righteousness of God. You're creating yourself this resentment and this rejection when you should be clinging to the the word of God. Anger does not achieve the righteous life that God desires. We've got to change our attitude and our perspective. And so he says, I need you to plant within your soul the word of God. He says, verse 21, put aside all filthiness. What's hilarious about this word is they actually used it for earwax. And in the context in which he says, you've got to be quick to hear, He's saying, get that dirty earwax out of your ear and listen. They also used it for dirty clothes. They used it for moral vices. He says, put aside all filthiness and all that remains of wickedness. This wickedness are our evil desires, like wanting to throw rocks in the pool. And he says, in humility, same word that we would translate gentleness or meekness, which is restraining your strength. A horse is the best example of meekness, a most powerful animal, an animal that could kill you, but an animal that you can move and control just with a bridle in its mouth. With humility, receive the word. This is the truth, the word of God, and implant it into your soul. Let it be a part of you. That means it cannot go in one ear and out the other. It can't be just a hearer who says, I know what you said. Sometimes in an argument with someone, someone will accuse me of saying, I'm not sure you heard what I said. And to make them mad, I'll repeat back word for word with them what I said. But what they're actually saying when they said, I don't think you heard me, is they're saying, I don't think you understood me. I don't think you're feeling what I'm feeling in the words I'm using. Yes, you can quote the words back, but you didn't understand what I was saying with the words I was using. You need to process that. And so similarly, he's asking us to implant the word of God in our lives so that it's growing up within us. Now, how would I ever do that? I'd have to not just let it go in my ear. I'd have to let it become a part of my life. And that is going to take cooking. That, that's actually going to change how it affects me. My wife's the best cook I know, an excellent cook. The spices she uses, uh, the skill of the knowledge of how even the chemistry of cooking works is amazing. I'm a great beneficiary. I should be 300 pounds. I'm not, thankfully. But in the same way that a cook works with food, we should take the word of God and let it permeate every part of our being by letting it stew within us. Letting it grow up within us. So that's going to take knowing the word of God well enough that you're not just staring at the page, but you're analyzing it in your mind and you're letting it become a part of you. The best way I found to do this is to memorize scripture. It was much easier when I was younger. In fact, my mother used to punish me by making me memorize scripture. (laughs) Sad. (laughs) But it worked. I can still remember my punishment verses. 
but the guy that wrote the Bible, Charles Ryrie, <laughs> I befriended when I was old, and he was way older than me. And he says, I know it's getting harder to memorize Scripture, but don't stop memorizing Scripture. As I've gotten older, I have a harder time sleeping. Uh, I have stressful jobs that wake me up at 3.30 in the morning. It's really hard to go back to sleep. Can't turn on the light and read my Bible. I do have a Bible on my phone, and occasionally if I'm having a really hard time, I will pull it up on my phone. But you know what the best Bible I have at 3.30 in the morning? My memorized word. And I'll call that up and I'll stew around around the word of God and about the stress that I'm feeling because the, way, the reason I'm awake is because I'm stressed. And I'm processing the word of God alongside of the feelings that I'm having and I'm wrestling with God like a Jacob wrestling with God about what he said is true and how I'm feeling about things. And it works. It's helpful. And one of the strangest things about memorizing is once it's in your brain, it can be recalled even when you're not trying to recall it. On the worst night of my life, suddenly a verse I didn't even remember memorizing. I was saying, like, where in the world did that come from? Isaiah 26.3, Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on thee because he trusteth in thee. Where did that come from? How would I have even known that verse? I don't even remember memorizing it. But it was there, and the Holy Spirit who indwells me called it to my mind and pulled it up and said, here is the truth. This is the answer. Work this truth into your life. And that's exactly how we respond to temptation. He's saying, let the word of God implanted in your life grow, it can save your soul. This is my second favorite key verse in the entire book of James. It's one that we should memorize and the one that we should make a part of our life to say, I have to put aside filthiness and all that remains of wickedness and in humility receive the word implanted, which is able to save my soul. Brothers and sisters, if we want God to have his way with us, we have to understand how it is that we rebel against him and understand how the lure is coming apart, how it is attacking us, and analyze it and fight against it with the truth of what God says from his word. Thy word is truth, and we can believe him in that. Would you pray with me? Father, we come before you and thank you because we believe what you have said. Your desire for us is to be whole and complete. Your desire for us is to have no impediment in our relationship with you. You want to fill us completely with your spirit. You want us to guide us as we walk and step with the spirit. And we would ask, therefore, that we would understand how sin works, how temptation works, and that we'd make the proper steps in order to guard ourselves from temptation and to place ourselves into your care and to love you with a whole heart and to be doers of the word, not just hearers of the word. Oh, Father, we want to please you. Help us as we seek to follow you in all our efforts and ways. We pray in Jesus' name.
Amen.